we are going to go ahead and get started. We have handouts in the back that can help you as you follow along with this talk on Jesus and his uniqueness and the resurrection. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has risen from the dead and reigns at your right hand uh, until all his foes submit and uh, sit beneath his feet. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, give us uh, power to proclaim him to our friends and our neighbors that many might hear and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so why do we believe that a man three days dead got up and walked out of a tomb? Today's class is, at the end of the day, about the fundamental question of Christianity. Everything hinges on this. Because what someone believes about Jesus ultimately determines how they're going to answer many other relevant and important questions. For instance, if I believe that Jesus really is God incarnate then obviously I will also believe in God, right? Can't have one without the other. If I believe that God truly raised Jesus from the dead, then it will be reasonable for me to believe that the other events recorded in Scripture that require miraculous power, like the crossing of the Red Sea, like Elijah calling, uh, like fire coming down from heaven and consuming the sacrifices on Mount Carmel. Uh, If I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then I can believe all the other miracles of the Bible because everything flows downstream from if God can raise the dead. As we consider this question today, my hope is to make this argument practical so you can actually use it in conversations with those who either are doubting their faith or with non-Christians who claim not to have faith. So there's eight points that I'm going to make today. They're just listed. It's a pretty simple outline today. Eight points listed in your outline regarding the uniqueness of Jesus Christ uh, and the power of his resurrection. And they kind of, there's that, see that little diagram there? Everything kind of, the, the structure of this is everything centered on Jesus. We're going to see that, that multiple things uh, testify to him and then different Uh, everything that comes after him also testifies to him so that we have this kind of fully fleshed out orb idea of who Jesus is. Um, So to start off, we'll start with the left side of the diagram. Um, uh, Well, actually, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, But the first point that we have to come to grips with is that Jesus really is, (laughs) is really a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. All of Christianity rests upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the historicity of his life, his birth, his, his, uh, <laughs> his life, his death, and his resurrection. Why do we make such a big deal about Jesus? Well, it's built because we believe that our fundamental problem is not a lack of information, but our fundamental problem is sin, rebellion against God, which results in us running up this huge debt in God's balance sheet. And because our condition is serious, the treatment is also also of necessity must be serious. So the problem, our problem is so deep, we don't just need to be pointed in the right direction in order to change our lives. We need God to change us. We need transformation. We need the new heart, the new life uh, that's only found in Christ. So it's not like, so Jesus is a big deal because we understand that only Jesus can produce that transformation. If you follow Buddhism, you're going to 
shift your life in particular ways in order to live more righteously or a better life. We're saying that won't cut it because it doesn't deal with our sin problem and it doesn't give us the requisite uh, life that we need. So all of the religions are modifying your behavior in some way, shape, or form. Christianity says, no, that's impossible. Only, only an inside-out transformation can happen, and we believe that can only happen through Jesus. So theologically, these are the underpinnings of Christianity, and they all rely on the person of Jesus. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, everything hinges on the resurrection. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus did not raise from, rise from the dead then what we are doing and everything that our lives are built about is pretty much useless, right? We, cannot go, we could not, in good conscience, go on if Jesus didn't rise from the dead to do what we're doing because we're, we're not about behavior modification. We're not just about how, is, you know, how are we going to clean up our acts. Christianity isn't a clean up your acts exercise. It's about the power that's resonant in Jesus and his resurrection. And theologically, if, if, if this is true, it also has tremendous implications for non-Christians because Jesus answered and said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the, the person of Jesus, everything hinges on him. So Jesus either is alive or he's not, right? That's actually, that's got to be true, right? Jesus, the man, is either right now alive or he's still dead. He either conquered sin or he didn't. We can either have new transformed lives through his resurrection or we're living a lie. This is how high the stakes are. Or, for the non-Christian, either either Jesus is still dead and so you can live your life however you want, or he's alive and that means things for you. It means he is Lord of you, whether you want him to be or not. So the big question really is, is it true? Is Jesus Christ alive or is he still dead? The philosopher Kierkegaard said the central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose again on Easter morning. Because how we understand that question determines how we will answer every other question. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're, you actually believe Jesus rose from the dead, acknowledge that that has life-changing implications for you. So you can ignore him, but if he actually rose from the dead, you have to deal with him. If he's still dead, you can ignore him safely. But if he's really alive, there's nothing, it doesn't matter how much you're going to ignore him, you still have to deal with him. All right. But what we believe is that Jesus is actually rooted in history, not just the idea of philosophy, just the, just the realm of ideas. This leads to the second point. Jesus was a historical person. Obviously, most of what we know about Jesus' life on earth comes from the Gospels. 
but there are approximately 20 other extra-biblical references to the Jesus of history. So 20 non-biblical sources where historians or, or, other, or other writers are referencing the person of Jesus Christ. And this evidence is strong enough that almost no serious scholar would deny that Jesus of Nazareth actually was a historical person. So it's not just like that something he was made up as a, like Hercules or somebody, like some, some mythical figure. He really was a real person. No one really disputes that. Perhaps the most influential of the accounts we have is from a Jewish historian named Josephus. He was born in AD 37. He was, a, he was Jewish, but he, he kind of got on the Roman side uh, after uh, the Jewish defeat by Rome. Um, so uh, he became a Pharisee at age 19. At age 66, he commanded the Jewish forces in Galilee. Uh, he became a historian of Jewish history, and this is what he said about Jesus. He says, about this time lived Jesus. He performed amazing feats. Pilate sentenced him to the cross, but those who loved him from the first did not cease to be attached to him as his disciples. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after the fiction and that he was alive. Okay, so that was an early, early first century uh, historian who's talking about the person Jesus and that his followers believed that he had risen from the dead. We also know that Roman historians comment on the, on the early activity of Christians. So the historian Tacitus, no friend of the gospel, um, he wrote 50 years after Josephus, and he wrote this. Christus, the founder of the name Christians, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of, Jeru- of Judea in the time of Tiberius. But this pernicious superstition repressed for a time, broke out again, not only in Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. So he doesn't like Christianity, doesn't like Christians, but, but re- understands that, uh, that, that it's based on a, a historical person. Jesus was undeniably a historical figure. But Christians go one step further than simply saying Jesus was a historical figure. We actually believe, and now this kind of gets back to that chart, that the history of Israel and the words of the prophets provide a show and tell for who Jesus would become, who, would, who Jesus would come to be, I should say. 4,000 years of history was getting us ready for the Jesus who actually came as the Messiah. So Jesus is the point of the history of Israel. So starting from right from the beginning of time, God was working through the history of his people to point them toward a Messiah. Their history became the Messiah's story. See, God went to all these elaborate lengths to arrange the history of Israel. He called Israel his son... Because Israel was going to serve as the ultimate analogy, the greatest word picture ever, on the grandest scale, for the coming of Messiah. And their entire history declares there's a Redeemer coming. This is why. This is what he's going to look like. Right? So if we look at just a few examples, immediately after the fall, God tells Adam and Eve what? Look for a deliverer. A human deliverer, a seed of the woman, who's going to crush the serpent's head and be wounded by the serpent in the process. So right from the get-go, it's telling us, what are you looking for? History's heading in this direction toward Jesus. Abraham and Isaac, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, or just about to sacrifice Isaac, 
um, and offer him as a sacrifice, we see more, we get the picture of how God's going to deliver his people. We see that the highest love is that you would give up your only begotten son for another. We see that God is going to preserve the seed of promise. We see that a substitutionary offering is necessary. Isaac is spared. The the ram dies. We're going to see that God provides for his people's needs, right? Abraham calls him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provision. And that our greatest need is forgiveness. So that, that pivotal story is showing us what the Redeemer is going to be like. We see in the, in the Exodus and in the Passover, we see all sorts of truths about Messiah coming out of that. We see that sinners are in cruel bondage and need to be delivered from it. We see that in order to redeem sinners from bondage, a payment is required, a life for a life. And so what life was given? The life of the spotless Passover lamb. Only substitutionary blood of an unblemished sacrifice can avert death. Because apart from sacrifice, everyone, even God's chosen people, deserve to die. And we even see the public display of the blood as the blood is is placed on the doorframe and on the lintels of the door. So this is all, again, Israel's history is pointing toward what Messiah will be. We just see the death, burial, and resurrection theme going again and again. And Luke 24 says... Uh, Jesus says, all, all things in the prophets and the Psalms are pointing to the fact Messiah will die, be buried, and rise again. And we see all of Israel's horrific cycles, right? They fall under judgment, and, and they essentially are buried, and then they're resurrected. God delivers them and raises them up out of, out of death. So we see uh, in the wilderness, they, the nation dies and then is resurrected as, a new, as the new people, the new generation rises up. Israel dies and rises again. That happens again in the judges cycle, right? They're constantly going through the cycle of death and resurrection. And even the exile into Babylon, the nations comes under judgment, is exiled out of God's presence, but then rises again in the restoration of, of, uh, of under Ezra and Nehemiah. And so all these things are pointing to the fact that Messiah is going to die and be buried and rise again. Then the leaders of Israel, God gives leaders to Israel, and they're also shaping us to see what Messiah is going to look like. So we have judges and prophets and priests and kings, and all those leaders are going to culminate in one, one uh, triumphant figure of, of the Messiah. But all those former rulers and leaders prove insufficient because they can't actually accomplish Israel's salvation in the way that they need to. We're still waiting for Messiah. So there's all these narratives from Israel's history are to teach the Israelites man's plight, the need for sacrifice to deal with sin, that suffering of the Messiah is going to be involved, that there's got to be a combination of divine and human required for salvation, and that God has to give himself uh, for salvation. And so God is using these events to point to is- and prepare Israel for Messiah. So that was the show. Everything in Israel's history is designed to show them what Messiah will be like. But then he tells them. So show, tell, show and tell. Um, he tells him what Messiah is going to do through the prophets. So the Bible gives over 300 prophecies, according to some evaluations, and then just countless allusions that testify to and were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. They give the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why. 
everything about him. So the who, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, giving us an idea of who Messiah is going to be. We see that he's going to, what he's going to be. He's going to be the Holy One. Psalm 16.10, Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption and decay, which Acts 2 says, that's Psalm 16, but Acts 2, Peter says it's about Jesus. The where is, is shown. Uh, Micah 5.2, Out of you, Bethlehem, Ephaphtha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, one of, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. The how, uh, Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Right? So the who, the what, the when, the where, the why of Jesus is all prophesied beforehand. And then if you think about the great servant psalms of Isaiah, where you see, especially in Isaiah 53, the, the grand vision of the suffering servant of God who's going to come and deal with our iniquities by being stricken and smitten and crushed for us, for the forgiveness, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He will be the lamb who's led to the slaughter. So we see God uses show and tell before Jesus lived to show why he was going to come. All right, so that's the left side of that chart. Now, what about when Jesus came in his life? Jesus' claims to be divine are corroborated by his life, his teaching, and his miracles. Jesus' life was remarkable. His works were amazing. His claims were incredible. So if God really was to come down and live among men, what would he look like? We don't have to speculate. We can know. Scripture tells us. So we see Jesus' amazing words. So Jesus is universally respected as a great prophet and a great moral teacher by even the other world religions. And his teaching is is moral truth exhibited at its purest. So it's not just a wishy-washy idealism, uh, but it's realistic, it's, it's clear, it's cogent, it's, it's sane. <laughs> it actually it reads like someone who really knows what he's talking about. And even, the most, even most opponents of Christianity are ready to, to agree with Jesus' moral teaching. So such things as just do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't perform your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. Right? It's sublime. It's beautiful. The Sermon on the Mount's incredible um, when you read it and you see the, the distillation of Jesus' teaching. And then if you look at the book of Luke especially, if you, like, I love Luke. I love Luke and how it shows all Jesus' parables which, which reveal his understanding of the heart of men, like the Pharisee and the tax collector, and how those two men, and one goes down to his house justified and the other doesn't. Or the, the rich man who, who decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones, and then God comes to him and says, you fool, this very night's going to be required of you. So he understands and sifts the heart of men. Um, it's as if he understands us better than we understand ourselves, which of course is true, because he made us. 
Jesus' works, Jesus' works are incredible. His teaching's incredible. His works are incredible. So if you just list, you know, John says that if, if we recorded all the deeds that Jesus did, the whole world wouldn't be full, couldn't be, would be filled with the books that would be written. But by one reckoning in the Gospels, there are 23 recorded healings, men with leprosy, paralyzed people, people with demons and demon possession, crippled uh, men and women, um, the healing of the official's son, the man born blind, the blind see, the lame walk, the, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus says that is fulfilled in me. We see nine works of power that command display over, display command over nature, so the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the calming of the storm, the walking on the water. And, and on three occasions, he brought the dead back to life, right? So Jairus' daughter is brought back from the dead. The widow, of, the widow at Nain, her son, is, is brought back to life as Jesus touches his coffin and speaks to him and Lazarus. And you know, his, his enemies did not dispute the reality of these miracles, right? His enemies you know, are trying to explain them away by saying that he's doing them through the power of the devil, but they're not actually denying. right? They want to kill Lazarus too, John says, because everyone's believing in Jesus because Lazarus, everyone knew Lazarus was dead. And then he was live, right? So his, his enemies are acknowledging the reality of his miracles. They're just disputing. They, they hate him, so they have to explain them as something else other than the, the great power of God that's come among them. And then you see Jesus' in, in extravagant claims. This paradox in his life, uh, that if you read the Gospels carefully, you capture this. You've got his gentleness and his meekness, but then he makes these outrageous statements concerning himself, like that he's the Lord over the law, like he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he gets to define what the law actually means, that the law actually is pointing to him, and he gets to be the authoritative uh, interpreter of it. Right? That would be crazy in a Jewish society um, where laws and rituals are just strictly kept, and he just announces to everyone that he gets to decide. He's the one that gets to decide and be the arbiter of what the law means. Um, he claimed to be able to forgive sin, right? He, the, the paralytic comes down, and before he heals him, he does the greater work, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and the, the, the Pharisees realize that he's blaspheming, um, and he doesn't dispute that. He doesn't dispute that he's claiming to be God. Uh, only God can forgive sins. He doesn't dispute that. He just says, you know, which is harder? And then he, he says, so that you will understand that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He raises him up. He claimed that no one could come to God except through him. Obviously, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. So no other path to God except through me. Right? What a claim is that? What an amazing, you know, to say that I, I am the one through whom you must come to God, right? What? <laughs> That's crazy to say that. You know, if you, you want to know God, you have to come through me. No other way. Don't look to anyone else. You've got to do it through me. Which, of course, is true of all of, all, all of you, right? If you want to come to God, you have to come through this man. It's, it's, it's an extravagant claim. He knew and, and claimed that he would rise from the dead. He says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. But what does he do? He sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Because he knows that's what he's got to do. 
he claimed to be God, right? Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the holy name for God in Hebrew, unutterable by any man. And after Jesus says this, they try to stone him because they realize what he's actually saying. It's not that they misunderstood him. They understood him. That's why they tried to stone him, that he was claiming to be God. So ultimately, and Steve said this a couple weeks ago, right? that led Lewis in his very analytical way to, to, to come to his conclusion, Jesus is either the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. And he says, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense, nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So what will you do with Jesus Christ? And that's, what, that's the question that you can let lie on the person you're trying to witness to, the person you're trying to talk with. What are you going to do with Jesus? This is what he wants you to do with him. What are you going to say to that? And then ultimately, the great sign that he, accompl- that, that he showed to accomplish, that he accomplished in order to show who he was, is his death resurrection. So his re- death and resurrection just cannot be explained away. Ultimately, Christians believe that what God accomplished at the end of Jesus' ministry over the period of three short days is the final argument that Jesus is God and that only he can make us right with God. So let's walk through some evidence why 21st century people can really believe that, that Jesus physically got up out of the tomb. So I don't think this, argue, this argument can ultimately convince someone to become a Christian, only the Holy Spirit can do this, but this is evidence that can bolster faith. So, at the end of the day, Christianity exploded not because Jesus died a martyr's death. That was not the touchstone that set Christianity off. It was because he was resurrected. It was not a martyr's death that caused the church to explode. It was the reality of the resurrection. That's what empowered the disciples. Christianity doesn't make sense without the resurrection. So, he really died. First, you have to establish he he really died. He was, so, if you just think about the accounts, he's up all night facing trials after his, his passion in the garden. He's, he's scourged with that long whip with leather and glass and, you know, and, and bits of metal and bone, you know, woven into it. He's had the crown of thorns placed on his head. He carries his own crossbar, crossbar of the cross part of the way. So weak, he can't keep going, so they have Simon of Cyrene carry it further. Then he's nailed through his, through his wrists and through his ankles to the cross. And then ultimately, when he, after he gives up his life, then the Roman thrusts that spear in into his side, and blood and water that's accumulated around his heart you know, comes pouring out. The Romans were experts at death, and they knew that this guy was really dead. He really was dead. He's placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb with a large stone, probably one to two tons, placed in front of it. Then an atta- a detachment of Roman guards is set over it at the chief priest's requests. That's between four and 16 soldiers. We don't know exactly how many. And then a seal was placed on that tomb, a Roman seal, saying, keep out. I don't know what it really said, but it, it, a seal on the tomb. So Jesus really was dead, and he was really placed in a sealed tomb. But three days later, this tomb is empty, open and empty. And this was never really refuted. 
So the disciples are preaching in the vicinity near that time. People could easily have walked to the tomb. Maybe some did. But the fact that the tomb is empty was never refuted. The very fact of this in the early proclamation of the empty tomb, uh, that just became the linchpin of where is Jesus? He is alive. And there's really only a few possible explanations for why the tomb of Jesus was empty. So, you've you've got to have a reason for why the body's not there. So, number one, maybe he swooned. Maybe he didn't really die. Okay? Some people think that. He He just was in a coma of some kind, you know, after the crucifixion. I think John Stott best refutes this scenario. He says, are we to really believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, he could survive 36 hours in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth nor food nor medical care, and then could rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb, and this without disturbing the Roman guard. And then, weak and hungry and sickly, he could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death, that he could go on to claim that he had died and risen, and, w- and had, that he had died and risen, could send them out all into the world and promise to be with them until the end of time. And so the idea that Jesus was not really dead just, you know, took a let, took a little nap, you know, and then came out, right? So that's not a tenable, that's not a tenable option. Uh, B hallucination. All the sightings of Jesus were false. People just didn't want to believe that Jesus was dead and that led them to, like, mass hallucination. Well, both Luke and John, in their gospel accounts, emphasized the disciples' own disbelief in the solidity of what they were seeing. So Luke, uh, he describes how that they, they offered him a piece of fish. fish like, he, they won't believe him, and he's like, is there anything here to eat? And they, they give him a piece of fish in order to prove that he's really alive. Um, so, so they're not like inclined to the solution hallucination. He's actually having to he's actually having to like find food, like they're giving him food. The John author notices that the disciple Thomas's insistence that he's not prepared to believe until he puts his fingers into the wounds in Jesus' side and into his hands, and Thomas is explicitly allowed to do this. Jesus invites him. To do this, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Right? So Jesus, and isn't that amazing? Jesus' glorified body still retains the scars of his saving death for us. And I, I, I tend to believe they'll be there forever. Forever marked with the wounds that healed us. I think that's wonderful and, and incredible. So explaining the, re- the resurrection is a hallucination. A hallucination of 500 people, right? That's what, that's what uh, Paul records, that there's 500 people that were witnesses to the resurrection. Most of them are still alive. You can go ask them, right? So mass hallucination just isn't really plausible. And besides, if that was really the case, if it was a mass hallucination, all the authorities have to do is what? Produce the body. And they don't. Okay, so what if the body was stolen? Well, what if it was stolen by the Roman or the Jewish authorities? Well, that one doesn't make any sense. They don't have very much to gain by moving the body. Um, and the very fact that, that uh, uh, the, the, the whole account 
highlights the fact that they could not produce the body. So not likely that, that it was stolen by the authorities. Well, what if it was stolen by the disciples? All right. Well, you got four to 16 Roman guards, right? So you've got to get past them. Uh, Roman guards continually kept watch over the tomb because of his claims. The whole reason the guards are posted is because the chief priests say to Pilate, he said he was going to rise again, so put the guard up. And he's like, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Their presence would have made it next to impossible for the disciples to steal the body without attracting attention. It's so unlikely that dispirited disciples could have gone and overcome a highly armed Roman guard in combat and then stolen the body. And 1 Corinthians 15, again, it's particularly important because it easily goes back to the... um, Sorry, lost my... Okay, so Paul's testimony certainly implies that he believes in an empty tomb because Jesus has risen from the dead. And he, again, refers to these 500 people who see Jesus after his resurrection. And Jesus has to appear to them. They can't find him. You know, Jesus actually goes and appears to them. So the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. It's not, it's not lunacy for us to believe that that really was the case. And then if, we, if you finish up with, if you look at then the right side of the chart, what flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus, where you see the changed lives of the disciples, right? So what are they like before the crucifixion? How would you describe them? Fearful. Fearful. Heroic. Uh, bold. Cowardly. Yeah, yeah, cowardly. It's, it's the women that are with him at the cross, with John, but, that, you know, they're, they're scattered, right? And so that's so, uh, such a contrast with what happens afterwards, and how do you explain a Pentecost and the boldness of the disciples in the book of Acts Um, the behavior of the apostles after Jesus' death not only defies the conspiracy theory that it was all just a, they just hatched the, you know, let's all decide that we're going to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the day Jesus died, they disowned and rejected him because they were terrified. But later, 11 of the 12 apostles and countless others died the death of martyrs testifying to the risen Christ. So where does this transformation come from? And what would they have gained from their deception? What would they have gained from willfully deceiving? Nothing but rejection, contempt, torture, and their deaths resulted from their their rock-solid conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that, that just isn't our experience. People don't die for a lie if they know it's a lie. People don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. Plenty of people die because they believe lies, but who dies for a lie that they themselves know to be untrue? Chuck Colson illustrates this. He's the guy that, he was one of uh, Nixon's men who went to jail and then got converted in jail and went on to to found, to to be an evangelist. He compares the disciples' supposed cover-up to the the fact that the Watergate conspiracy lasted such a short time. So the conspiracy itself of Watergate lasted such a short time, they all, they all ratted. He says this, Yet even the prospect of jeopardizing the president we'd worked so hard to elect, 
of losing the prestige, power, and personal luxury of our offices was not enough incentive to make this group of men contain a lie. Nor, as I reflect today, was the pressure really all that great. If the rest, if, if we were so panic-stricken, not by the prospect of beatings and execution, but just by political disgrace and a possible prison term, one can only speculate about the emotions of the disciples. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power will save their own necks in the crunch, though it may be the ex- at the expense of the one that they profess to serve so zealously. Is it really likely, then, that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lions for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ? Is it not probable that at least one of the apostles would have renounced Christ before being beheaded or stoned? Is it not likely that some smoking gun document might have been produced exposing the Passover plot? Why why were the early church leaders uh, so dogged, so bold, so intent on living and dying if they knew that this man was, was still dead and they were all just it was, they were just all you know propping up a hoax? We also see the, the miraculous and immense growth of the church. Christianity had to begin somehow, and if you read the Gospels up through the crucifixion, it's hard to explain it. So this is what I mean when I said before. Jesus didn't die as the first martyr in a great cause and thus inflaming the masses. It was not his death that sparked. His death quelled like everyone went to ground. Right? There were no riots, no mass marches when he was killed. His followers were comparatively few. They were not inflamed by the noble death of Jesus. It was the resurrection that inflamed the people, that began the explosion that was the Christian church, whose impact continues in the lives of many of us gathered here. So it's, with, it's the resurrection that was the, the spark that ignited the church. So it's actually Gamaliel in Acts 5 that provides a great explanation for this. Right? They, so so the, the apostles are in front of the Sanhedrin. They don't know what to do with this. They don't like anything that's going on. You know, the apostles are saying, we're going to keep talking about Jesus. And Gamaliel, who's Paul's teacher, stands up and he says this. He says, some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. All right, I want to get time for questions, which we haven't had much lately, but I want to just leave this last point. Jesus continues to change lives throughout history, and he's still changing them. 
So it's not just large worldwide changes that led to a belief that Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's also the lives of the saints throughout history. Now, this is a subjective argument, not likely to convince anyone, but hopefully a bolster, a bolster to you. Think about how the message of Jesus... Sorry, something's happening with my mic. The, just think about how the death and resurrection of Jesus has impacted miraculously the lives of so many people, including for many of you. So you think about Spurgeon sitting in the back of a chapel on a cold, wintry day, and an old deacon who's not preaching a very good sermon, you know, who was the real preacher couldn't get there, and so this guy's kind of getting up there, blah, 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 blah. But what he does say is he says, look to Jesus. All you have to do is look to Jesus. And Spurgeon gets saved. Um, There's an old farmer who remembered... George, BJ, help me. I couldn't find the reference. There's an old farmer who is sitting out on a wall, taking a break. He's like 90 years old. What, Luke Short? That's right, Luke Short. I couldn't find him this morning. Luke Short, he's sitting out on his, on his wall, taking a break from farming. He's like 90 years old. He remembers a sermon that he heard George Whitfield give 50, 60 years ago. And suddenly the truth of the gospel floods into his mind and he's converted at age 90. Now, like, again, these aren't things that are going to convince your non-Christian friend, probably, but like, think about the power of the gospel, the simple truth that Jesus died and rose. I love the one where one of the, one of the, there was a little group of guys, college kids, who hated what was going on in the Great Awakening and, the, and all the revivals that were going on, and so they would get together and they would mock Whitfield's preaching so they would, like, get together and they'd preach his sermons, like, to one another. And one guy was, like, really excellent mimic. And so he's, like, he's standing up there just derisively preaching with all of George Whitfield's affects and everything like this. And he's preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel mockingly to his friends. Suddenly it hits him, the truth of what he's saying. And he's converted as he's, as he's mocking the message of the gospel, you know, and, and, he, and he gets saved. <laughs> So, or, you know, whether you've got Lewis, who's this careful Oxford professor with serious intellectual problems, and he examines the case, and he examines the truth, and he works it through, and he comes to faith. Um, you know, Colson again, who, who fi- finds Christ after, after the crisis of Watergate and goes to prison and finds the hope of the gospel. And just think about your life. And think about what the message of the resurrection of Jesus has done for you and how it's changed you. And think about how the... Ephesians says the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in you, raising you to spiritual life, and will one day raise your your mortal bodies as well. And that power is really there. Okay, a couple questions now. We're going to actually have... The last session is going to be a whole ton of Q&A. But any questions about the uniqueness of Jesus or the evidence for the resurrection, the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, Chris. What about the Jewish church? Islam, it's been around for a while. Um, there's still plenty of adherence of in the world today. Um, meaning, meaning how, why does it not pass the, the Buddhist test? Yeah. You know, the, the Gamaliel test, if you will. Well, number, number one, you know, Muhammad is killed in 
Muhammad's killed in battle, right? So you, you don't actually have this, you don't, the difference between 500 people seeing a resurrected Messiah and one man going into a cave and having a revelation, right? So you have much less data of the objective nature of what the, the apostles and what the, re, and the, the believers and the witnesses to the resurrection saw than the revelation of one man who has a vision, right? And, and then, you know, I mean, I don't exactly, I, I, he, was, he was not, you know, mar- he was not martyred, he was killed in battle, if I, my memory serves. Correct me, someone, if I'm wrong, I don't want to lead you astray. So, you know, Joseph Smith, also, right, one guy going into a cave, you know, maybe, uh, you know, and he's killed by a mob, right? These aren't people that are, they, they, these, they're, they're not dying for it, like Peter, confess Jesus, or we're going to crucify you upside down. No. You know, or, um, so... Of Christianity, but I mean, Islam has endured for that long, mm-hmm. even yeah. though it's, you know. Yeah, oh, false religion. Yeah, false religion will continue till the end of the world, just as, as true religion will. So the, the very fact of the explosion of Christianity is not a definitive, is not a definitive proof. It just means that, you know, why is it reasonable to believe that this is based on a historical event that really happened? I'm not going to point to the, the growth of, relig- of, of, of Christianity as a religion as the definitive uh, reason I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. However, it's consonant with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's bolstering. It's giving a credible case for why, it, why it's not And that's the difference, right? We're not looking for the definitive proof. We're looking for why is this reasonable? Brian. Interviewed or debated with a Islamic scholar that called Jesus the Savior. And I've heard Mormons call Jesus the Savior. Mm-hmm. I think their philosophy is clear. Their religion is changed. Saviors could be, be different. But yeah. I mean, the Quran itself you know, is, is the only one, the only person in the Quran I've heard that were, who has a miraculous birth, miraculous life, and miraculous end to his life, although they dispute the details of the end, is, is actually Jesus, even in the Quran. All right, now what I want you to do is I want you to think next week. Next week I'm going to ask you, I have little pieces of paper, I want you to give me questions for us to address at the last session. Next week we're going to be talking about world religions, comparative religion, and then on the last session, we're going to actually, I'm going to have it mostly Q&A, which is scary for me because this is not my, <laughs> my best forte. But we'll, we'll, do some, we'll do some good Q&A and bouncing around how to have good apologetic conversations. But I want you to prime me for that by next week having questions ready that I can take. And then, so be thinking this week of questions so next week you can give me the questions so I have a week to think about them. Um, before we have our last session. Make sense? Okay. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful reality that we have a Savior who does ask us to give up our lives for him, but who first gave up his life for us and who raised, who did raise from the dead in power, uh, giving us all, that we, all the uh, assurance we need that we can give our lives to him 
readily and freely and without fear because he will surely raise us from the dead as he himself was raised from the dead. Lord, that let us have courage, therefore, to live and to even die for him. In Jesus' name, amen.